Ayelet Fishbach is an award-winning psychologist at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and the past president of the Society for the Science of Motivation. Dr. Fishbach has published more than 100 scientific articles in many psychology and business journals. Her groundbreaking research on human motivation has won the Society of Experimental Social Psychology's Best Dissertation Award and Career Trajectory Award. Dr. Fishbach's scientific findings are regularly featured in the media, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, and NPR. Today on the program, Dr. Fishbach and I will talk about her latest book, Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. I'm so excited you've joined me. Thanks for being here on another episode of The Burleson Box. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. Dr. Fishbach, it's such an honor to have you on the program today. Thank you for joining us. It's just uh, an extreme privilege to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Tell us a little bit about the research you do at the University of Chicago at the Booth School of Business that led to your new book, Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. Well, I uh, study motivation. Surprise, surprise. I uh, study uh, motivation in uh, in the context of uh, management. So how uh, do we motivate ourselves at, at work? How we motivate our employees, our uh, bosses? Uh, I study motivation in the context of consumer behavior. How do we motivate ourselves and others to make healthy choices, to to buy the food that's good for us, to exercise, how do we motivate ourselves to to study, uh, to uh, uh, save money, and, and and so on. I came across a great article that that introduced me to your work uh, in the Financial Times, and it was uh, it, when we should let listeners know that we're recording this in the the first month of the year when everyone sets New Year's resolutions. <laughs> and uh, I loved uh, that your advice is based on some really great research. You admitted something I've struggled with, which is during the pandemic, it's been really hard to stay motivated. Can you talk a little bit about the research behind motivation? Yeah, so everybody knows it. It's been hard, right? That is uh, quite intuitive for us at, the, at this point. Uh, what some of us might not know is uh, why Why was it so hard? In particular, given that initially we saw that 
people were genuinely motivated. So in the first few months where everybody was sent home, we expected people to really struggle with that motivation. Uh, turned out that people were working harder than ever. Uh, maybe there was absolutely nothing else to do. Uh, maybe they were afraid to lose their jobs. Uh, we're not really sure, but we know that initially people worked hard. Uh, then a few things uh, uh, happened. Uh, uh, one is that just after you, you worked really hard, after you were trying to you know, keep yourself uh, at work and meeting the challenges of, of like the new changes and the new ways of doing everything, uh, you get tired and you uh, uh, you kind of in, in the second phase of the the pandemic. In, in terms of motivation research, people realize that this is not temporary. This is not us just working really hard for a month or or two until this is over. This is uh, the new reality. Uh, another reason why it became really hard is that we are used to work with the people that help us at work. We have colleagues, we have employees and, and, and bosses, we have the people that are around us and uh, and, and help us work and, and help us do the, the things that we need to do at work. Being without these people or being in the company of people that are not very supportive of our professional goals, our kids, for example, uh, that turn out to uh, uh, to be a problem. That turn out to uh, make things uh, uh, harder uh, for people. Uh, add to the, just the, the stress of everything that's going on around us, and uh, now all the the other goals that uh, uh, that are on our mind. Okay, we are trying to adjust our entire uh, lives. Uh, it just became harder to do our work. There were just too many adjustments for uh, many people. Now, now, we all adjusted and we all did a lot of learning over the last couple of years, uh, but still there are uh, some struggles, major struggles. Yeah, have you, I'm curious if you've seen that with your students at the Booth School of Business. It's one of the best business schools in the world, you know, very highly competitive. How have they adapted through this pandemic? <laughs> Oh, we really, we, we don't make it easy for our students. <laughs> we send them home and then we tell them to come back and then we tell them to go home again. <laughs> and, and you know, and this is really hard. And I remember like one of the, like the first months of the pandemic, we were criticizing our students for meeting and, and having an outdoor uh, uh, party and everybody was saying how terrible are these students that they are mingling and I remember thinking well you know they came to school to meet other students they they came to make these connections to uh, uh, to work with other people and in any other time in, in in our school, we would encourage these gatherings. All of a sudden, we, we tell people not to gather and it's so unintuitive for how we are all used to do things. So, so that has been uh, hard. Uh, we must say that uh, students are, are adjusting and like, you know, most of us are just uh, learning new ways of doing things. Some of my students are actually even happy at this point that they can get uh, more done because they don't need to commute. Some of them used to fly into Chicago to take my classes. Now they, no, actually now they cannot take them over Zoom, but when they could take them <laughs> online, some of them said, oh, I might be graduating one quarter earlier than I planned. This is really good news. 
That's very cool. So and there's research in the book that talks about the changing of circumstances and kind of how that sets us up for success and changing our behavior. Um, I'm curious for the listener who is setting some big goals, perhaps in the new year, um, you have some great advice scientifically based in the evidence on how we know if we've set the right goal. Can you talk about how do we know if we're even on the right path in setting goals? Yeah, so first you mentioned the circumstances and our motivation is very much a function of our circumstances. This is something that every social scientist would agree with. Uh, when we try to motivate ourselves, we usually think about how to change our circumstances. How do we put ourselves in the right place at the right time so that we are uh, working how that we are doing our best. And in my book, I talk about four areas in which we can make these interventions. We can set goals in a way that has better chance of success. We can better monitor our progress toward these goals. We can think about how to prioritize or compromise between our multiple goals, and we can think about how to leverage social support. So these are the, the four elements. Uh, when we look specifically at New Year's resolutions, uh, those are interesting goals for us because these are goals that many people here uh, set around New Year. So they uh, actually throughout the month of January, people are setting their uh, resolutions. And uh, uh Few of them, maybe only about quarters, say that they still pursue these resolutions the following November. Okay, so when we follow a large group of people, we see that only few, uh, relatively few, stick with their goals. And uh, one thing that predicts whether people will stick to their goals is how much they chose their goals or they identify the goals in a way that feels right at the moment, okay, that feels good to pursue, that maybe they enjoy the exercise uh, uh, that they chose, uh, they like the food that they decided to eat, uh, they decided to, uh, uh, to learn a new uh, uh, topic and they find it interesting, uh, or uh, uh, they you know, maybe decided to have some financial or uh, professional goals, like pursuing a promotion, for example, and they are excited about doing the work, not just getting the, uh, the promotion. Basically, what predicts adherence to New Year's resolutions is intrinsic motivation, is that the extent to which that doing the thing feels like an end in itself. This is really interesting because most of these resolutions are not intrinsically motivated. Most of these resolutions are not things that are fun to do. They are things that you feel that you are required to do. Nevertheless, if they feel good at the moment, people are sticking with them. I, I like that. And I, it helped me in looking at some of the goals we set. And you realize we've kind of set ourselves up from the very beginning to maybe not achieve them because we haven't picked something that's internally or intrinsically motivating. Um, I encourage everyone to, to go through that section of the book. Um, I liked how you talk about targets, why we should use them. And maybe if we have time, if we can talk about the risk of letting other people set our targets and perhaps how we might be setting the wrong targets for employees as leaders in our businesses. Can we, can we talk about targets a little bit? Yes. Uh Targets are the, the numbers that we put on our goals, okay? So it's like how much and how soon. Like I, I, I want to save money, but how much I want to save this year, okay? Or I want to exercise, but what does it mean? Like, you know, how many times per week? 
how many steps in a day. Okay, it's it's a specific number, and. These numbers are useful because once we set this number, we really care about it. Okay, yeah. uh, one of the, the nicest illustrations comes from a study that looked at the distribution of marathon running times in the U.S. And the researchers looked at a collection of almost 10 million runners. And what they found is that the distribution is not smooth. Okay, There are many more people that are finishing the marathon just below four hours than just above four hours it looks as if it is easier to finish a marathon in three hours and 59 minutes than in four hours and one minute. Of course, it's not easier. It's just that many people have the goal of running a marathon under four hours. And so when they, they get to the three hours and something, they try hard to uh, make it just below uh, four hours. Uh, targets motivate us. We see anything that is below the, the target, okay, that you know that we can uh, uh, do it faster than how we plan to do it as, a, as an achievement, okay, as a gain, uh, anything above it. If we were slower, if we didn't finish something on time or didn't do enough, we uh, see that as a loss. Uh, and therefore, targets are great. Now, saying that, we need to have a healthy relationship with our targets. Our targets only meant to motivate us. They're usually not that important by themselves. Okay, So it's usually not really critical if we had whatever number of steps we chose for the day. You know, many people choose 10,000. It's really like if we just had 9,900 steps, that's perfectly fine. If we saved $100 less than what we plan to, that's fine. Okay, the target was meant to motivate us. And in, in the book, I uh, try to uh, remind people to have healthy relationships with our targets and also to set our targets such that we have maybe 80% chance of achieving them so that we are kind of, we know in advance that this meant to challenge us, that if we, we don't quite get to this all the time, that's completely fine. That means that the target is working. It's motivating us. It's not easy to achieve. Yeah, I, I really appreciated that part because the tendency with a lot of the listeners in medicine and dentistry and professional practice is to set really high targets. <laughs> you know, we have a tendency to be perfectionists, and sometimes that can be dismotivating to to set the target out of reach. Well, it's good if it's out of reach. It's not good if it's so much out of reach that you really have no chance. Okay, Never so go. you know, uh, uh, planning to do more than what you can do in a day. Okay, maybe seeing more patients. Okay, or uh, uh, meeting your goals more quickly than what you think is is feasible. That's okay as long as it's so unrealistic so that you uh, just give up. Okay, you, you look at it and you say, well, there's just no chance. I might as well just give up. Uh, or if you uh, take your targets too seriously, okay, if you, you know you set an ambitious uh, deadline for your uh, uh, staff and then your staff doesn't meet the ambitious deadline, well, that's fine, okay? They probably worked harder than if they didn't have an ambitious deadline. So let's celebrate what they did achieve. That's great. I love that. And you dispel some of the myths out there. And I see this in private practice where we set targets and then we try to attach incentives to them. Can we talk a little bit about some of the myths about uh, incentives? Uh, oh, there, there, are, uh, <laughs> there are many 
<laughs> Do you have a favorite? Uh, yeah, there, there is, uh, you know, incentives. Uh, incentives are great. Okay? Uh, in, in the book, I give the uh, example of how uh, French colonials in the beginning of the uh, 20th century uh, created an incentive uh, uh, system uh, in Hanoi uh, basically telling uh, people that they are going to pay one cent per dead rat, okay? They had a problem of rats running around the street. Now, the, the incentives worked very well in the sense that the residents of Hanoi were eager to bring dead rats and, and claim the money. So there were many dead rats. What the French colonials didn't take into account is that the way to get to a dead rat is by first having a live rat. And so people were also breeding rats and there were overall more rats on the street. So when I say that the incentive system worked, well, it, it worked in the sense that it got people to breed rats, which is not something that you would do unless you are getting paid for. Uh, so incentives work, but they can also lead us to do something that's not good for us or not good for, for other people. Okay, We might incentivize the wrong thing, and we see this all the time you know, in, in, you know, in, in medicine, in public policy, in education. We incentivize something which is not exactly the behavior that we want to have and and we get the wrong outcome okay we might you know in medicine like doctors tell me that they uh, in they're being incentivized by the, the number of patients that they can see but not by the quality of care that they are giving okay so you might see many patients but not have great quality of care because you are on the wrong incentive system uh, another myth is that uh, uh, incentives need to be uh, certain and fixed. Actually, incentives are more motivating when they are a bit unpredictable. Uh, bonuses are motivating because you are not sure whether you will get the bonus or how much uh, it's going to be. And so uncertain incentives are better. Uh, many incentives, uh, with, when it comes to incentives, it's not that the more the merrier. Okay, uh, when we have many incentives, we often confuse ourselves about why why we do the thing that we do. Okay? Uh, often you you want to have just the right amount of incentives so that people still realize that they do the work because they care to do high quality work because they they care about being good professionals because they care about their their patients because they you know they care about their uh, students. And, and so getting incentives, uh, you know, not too many so that you are no longer sure what's the purpose of yeah, your I've, profession. I've, I've been in organizations that have done that. And I'm uh, embarrassed to say we've done that on our own businesses where we're not sure why we're measuring what we're measuring. There's too many incentives. Um, I, I want to, if we can, maybe dovetail intrinsic motivation with that. Are there some examples where... We can align our targets and incentives w with what is intrinsically motivating to employees or to ourselves. Yes, intrinsic motivation is the biggest predictor of doing just anything. Okay, we we follow through with our goals because they are intrinsically uh, motivating, and intrinsic motivation really refers to feeling that something is right for you as you are doing it, achieving the, the goal that you set to achieve while you are pursuing the action. 
extremely uh, intrinsically motivated activities are activities that really don't have any goal beyond engaging in the activity, okay? Like reading a wonderful book, okay? Or, you know, having an amazing uh, dinner with uh, your best friend. Uh, These are intrinsically motivated activities. For most of our professional activities or, you know, the goals that we set, it's not just intrinsically motivating, okay? You also do it because there is some something long-term, something that is not immediately there. Still, the extent to which that feels right at the moment, to the extent that you feel that this is what you want to do, this is what you enjoy doing, you are doing it with people that you appreciate, uh, that uh, predicts engagement. Uh, the mistake is that we often don't realize that this is the case for us, okay? So when we plan for the future, we often undermine intrinsic motivation. Uh, when I uh, uh, survey my business students, they often tell me that they care about intrinsic motivation for their current workplace, okay? So what gets them out of bed in the morning is that they are doing something that they like with people that they like. But it, in their next job, uh, they will care less about intrinsic motivation. In a way, when I apply for my next job, I will put less emphasis on doing something that is truly interesting with the people that I really like. Uh, I may put more emphasis on, on salary and, uh, and, and benefits. This is a mistake because the future self is going to be the present self once you get there. Uh, another mistake is not realizing that other people are driven by intrinsic motivation, by feeling good as they are doing something. Uh, in a way, often we we try to convince the people around us to do something because it's important for them, okay? And we underemphasize that it will feel good, okay? When you do this, you will feel right. It will feel good to you. It will feel right for you. Uh, you uh, will find yourself engaged and, and happier with that, uh, what you do than if you didn't do it, understanding that other people care to be intrinsically uh, motivated uh, would improve our relationship with our employees, you know, with our staff, with our patients, uh, with the people around us. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio. But maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. And now, back to the program. We've found that in our practices that we participate with a nonprofit called Smiles Change Lives. And what we do is provide free orthodontic treatment to kids who need it but can't afford it. And the employees 
when we survey them and ask them about, you know, what are their what do they love the most about their job, that always comes back as something that they enjoy. And it seems like a bigger intrinsic motivator is on those days or in those circumstances where they get to provide free care and do it because they love it. It reminds them why they got into dentistry and orthodontics in, in the first place. I thought that was really, really interesting and tying into the research in the book. Um, I, I love this example, right? Because I, I bet that the reward of uh, being able to, to help someone is, is the goal that got people to engage in medicine in the first place, right? It's like the, the desire to... Uh, to help other people, to make them happier and healthier. And in, in a way, uh, uh, we might confuse ourselves uh, uh, over the years of engaging in a profession and kind of forget that this is the, the source of intrinsic motivation for doing our job. And I think this is a nice example of how when you remove the other incentives, you really remind ourselves, well, I, no, I, I like to make a child happy and healthy. Yeah, I, I I love that part of the book, and encourage everyone to, to to obviously get through the entire book. But there are some uh, highlights that I scribbled in the margins, and that was certainly one of them. Uh, if it's okay, I'd like to talk a little bit about ambition. I know there are some listeners who might be at a different level of their career. Maybe they're approaching retirement, or perhaps they simply don't have the ambition. Maybe that a younger doctor might have in growing his or her practice. Can we talk about how ambition impacts the way we achieve goals? Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, I often talk about ambition in the context of how we monitor our goals, okay? and in this case, our career path, and how we we look either at what we have achieved and what we have not yet uh, achieved. And there is an interesting trade-off with ambition is that if you look back at what you have accomplished, that often makes you feel better, makes you more committed to your current role, okay, to your current level of engagement. Uh, when we surveyed employees about what they have achieved this year, they felt better about the, the role that they were pursuing in the present. Uh, if you look ahead at what you have not yet achieved, okay, the, the glass half empty, uh, that often makes you more ambitious. That often makes you want to do the things that you haven't done yet, maybe to uh, move to a, a new uh, area, uh, maybe climb up the ladder in uh, some way, uh, maybe uh, get to something that you haven't had a chance to do in your uh, career or in, in your uh, role uh, yet. And so you, you can sometimes increase your ambition by looking ahead at what you can still do, uh, but know that if you instead look back at what you have achieved, you will feel more uh, committed. I also talk about ambition in the context of uh, uh, thinking about whether you can learn from negative feedback uh, versus positive feedback. And learning from negative feedback is, is really hard and unintuitive for people. We are often better able to learn from positive feedback. And to the extent that people are highly committed, they feel like the experts, they are at the top of their hierarchy, uh, that uh, makes them makes it easier to learn from negative feedback. So the, the highly ambitious people, to the extent that these are the experts, to the extent that these are the, you know, the, the people that already feel very 
confident with what they are doing, uh, that uh, makes it slightly easier to learn from mistakes. Yeah, I, I really appreciated the part on negative feedback. Again, we joked in the questions I sent over to you that, you know, in medicine and dentistry, doctors kind of often have large egos. <laughs> it's easy. The joke in cleft palate surgery is if the, if the procedure was named after you, it's hard to take criticism on the outcomes of that procedure. Um, wherein I think Silicon Valley or in other business ventures, leaders embrace learning from failure a little bit better. Um, so I like that advice of not only just looking forward of what do I want to accomplish, but looking back and seeing what you already have accomplished. And I pointed out in the questions that I loved chapter seven, the middle problem and I joked that uh, it's because I think it had the fewest number of references. When, when I, Listeners know when I get a book, I like to go back to the references and see, is this based in evidence or is this just someone's opinion? And I, I look up a lot of the references because I love to read. And But I love, <laughs> I love this chapter because I do this. I hide things in the middle. So if I am, and I think there's research on people waiting in line for, uh, for a long ride, like at an amusement park, uh, maybe at Disney. And whether they're looking forward to the ride that they are about to go on or they're looking in the back and seeing how many people are behind them in line. Um, I, I tend to cut corners in the middle. So in the middle of a project. Can you talk about that and maybe how we can minimize that tendency to, to hide things in the middle? Yeah, so we usually start uh, with some enthusiasm. Okay, we are uh, we have something new. We have a new beginning. Maybe it's the new year. We are all geared up. Uh, toward the end, in particular, these are uh, goals that have a, a specific endpoint. Okay, there's all or nothing uh, goals. Uh, then there is again like this uh, higher energy, and we are enthusiastic. We might have a graduation party. Okay, like we we completed a goal. Uh, in the middle, it's uh, where it, it, it's harder to uh, maintain our motivation and it's harder both to get the work done and to do it well. So we see that people relax their performance standards uh, as well as just engage less in, in the project, in whatever they are doing. It's when we lose uh, steam, uh, if you will. And... Uh, um, no, I, I talk about a few studies in, in the book. Uh, uh, let me mention one study in which we found that people literally cut corners in the middle. And so we, we gave people a few shapes to cut out. Uh, they were on a piece of paper and like a pair of scissors. And they were cutting these shapes well at the beginning and the end. In the middle, they were literally uh, cutting corners. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we, we have a problem and like you correctly identified one reason why this happens, which is we kind of hide in the middle. Okay. We, we kind of, uh, we don't remember what we did in the middle and we know that we will not really remember what we did in the middle. So it's kind of easy to not pay attention to my highest performance standards when it's in the middle when I think that I might not remember the first thing in the day, I pay attention. The last thing, well, I will remember how I did that. In the middle is when we see more of um, relaxing standards. So uh, what do we do? Well, we uh, keep middle short. We remind ourselves uh, that the task is still important in the middle. Uh, we uh, we find uh, new starts. It's the 
I don't know, Monday. It's uh, the beginning of the month. It's uh, the beginning of something. Uh, and anything that will make it feel like the beginning uh, will increase our, our motivation. I, I really enjoyed that part of the book. And, uh, you know, if you're kind of getting through the chapters in the order that we're talking about them, uh, you might find one day you have too many goals on your plate. I liked the the phrase picking your battles. I have teenage sons and here in the Midwest, it's freezing in the winter and one of my sons will routinely wear shorts and I always want him to wear warmer clothes, but I think to myself, okay, pick your battles. <laughs> Some things, this is not that important right now. I'd rather him do his homework and wear shorts and be cold when he comes out to the car. Um, can we talk about competing goals and, and picking your battles? Yeah, I, I I love your story because I also have kids and uh, and I'm also I'm in Chicago and somehow they don't feel cold wet. So you know, <laughs> oh well. Uh, but I I would say that I wrote about picking your battles because I sometimes hear the advice to just want one thing to just. Uh, uh, in a way, focus on one thing at a time. And this is often not really realistic. It, like we never really want one thing. Like all of us have uh, uh, no, uh, health goals and social goals and, uh, and we want to have fun in our lives and we usually have professional goals. And so we have different areas and, and there are always uh, many goals that we want to pursue. What we need to decide is whether we want to prioritize these goals, okay, which is like picking your battle, okay, like which one comes first now, which one will be attended later, or like which one we will focus on in, in this time in our lives, uh, or are we looking for a compromise? Okay, so it, it is easy to demonstrate with two goals that many people have, which is a family and a profession. Do you want to prioritize just your profession? So you might postpone having a family or no, prioritize your family, so you might put your professional development on hold. Or do you want to compromise, which means that you are going to find the, the right balance for you? Uh, then, assuming that you are willing to compromise, that you are looking for something that can serve several important goals, uh, to which extent can you find activities that, that serve both? Okay, Can you exercise during your uh, commute? Can you uh, uh, find the, uh, the activities that are engaging for you intellectually? And uh, you can also do them with family members. So you, you combine these uh, two goals at the same uh, time. Uh, really do, do the analysis. And I encourage people to write it down. Like, what, what are the important goals in your life? And what are the main ways in which you achieve these goals? And can you find ways that achieve uh, more than, than one goal? Yeah, I, I love that. And I, when you mentioned this earlier, it, it comes back now to mind that setting the right goal or, or thinking of ourselves in the future and maybe not paying enough attention to intrinsic motivation. You say in the book, in the chapter on self-control, you say, quote, you are your future's self's best friend. What can you do for that person today? End quote. And so the, I think you were mentioning the, the students who might not value something in the future as they do now, but you have to realize one day that person will be you. Can you talk about the research on self-control conflicts, maybe battling temptation and some of those things that come into this as we move towards the future? 
So self-control is where I started my uh, career as a, as a motivation scientist. I uh, thought about self-control conflicts forever. And self-control uh, is also the most, uh, I think, interesting conflict of uh, uh, No, handling uh, several goals, okay? There is what you want to do and what you ought to do and how do you uh, find the, the right solution for uh, these goals. Uh, usually, to the extent that there is a self-control conflict, that means that one goal is more important than the other, okay? So let's say uh, staying sober is, is more important than enjoying uh, uh, your drink or uh, staying calm is, is more important than the temptation that you might have to express your, your anger at uh, someone and, and so on. Uh, and with self-control conflict, there is the challenge of first identify the problem and then battling it. And I say first, identify the problem because really the one time that you raise your voice at a colleague or you know a family member will not destroy the relationship. So you really need to think about this one time as part of a pattern, realizing that if you are going to yell at that person quite frequently, well, that will destroy the relationship. Okay, so it's uh, what we often call a, a broad decision frame, okay, thinking about All the times that you will be uh, tempted to uh, skip work um, and, and are you going to call a sick day uh, seven times this month? Uh, probably not. Uh, therefore, probably should also not do it uh, today to just give another example of a self-control conflict. Uh, once that the conflict has been identified, now we think about how to battle that conflict. And one example that you refer to is to think about your, your future self, okay, and uh, what that person uh, wants for you. And that has been shown to help people be more financially responsible. Uh, for example, when you, you think about your future self, you realize that that person will need money and uh, uh, therefore you might need to spend less on your vacation today so that That, that person is okay too. Uh, we also uh, talk about um, reminding yourself of the problem. And, and you know, in my research, I find that when people are reminded that there will be temptation, that it's going to be hard, uh, they are doing better. Okay, So getting into a situation, if I can go back to anger management, getting into a situation where you... You expect that it's going to be tense. You expect that people are going to uh, uh, struggle. Okay? Uh, any medical setting during a pandemic, that's going to be stressful. Okay? People are going to lose it. Knowing that in advance allows people to uh, better control their, their temper and, and prepare to exercise self-control. Yeah, that was a great chapter. And I've, you know, in business decisions as well, I've found that it, there's a tendency for me and maybe others to focus in the moment and to, to make the decision for today or in a short term like this week, maybe in hiring a new employee that eliminates some short term pain. But then we don't realize, you know, maybe we hired the wrong person or we set off on the wrong goal. And, you know, six months from now, a year from now, the tendency is to underestimate all the things we could have done in the, you know, the next year or two. I just really appreciated that chapter on, you know, how will this impact my future self? I really um, thought that was powerful. Yeah, you know, uh, being uh, caught in the present is uh, so much of being human or just any, no, any animal uh, that it's hard 
Okay, it's just uh, we care so much about what happens today and so little about what happens next year. Um, and, and we really need to be conscious about fighting it off, but reminding ourselves that, well, next year or in six months, that is going to be my present as, as much as I care a lot about the rewards that I'm getting today. Uh, I, I will care about the rewards in, in the future as well. Yeah. I, as we get further in the book, there's some really great information, obviously, leading up to the end about setting individual goals and understanding intrinsically how motivation works. But I love that you talk about setting goals as a team. And I think this is great for our listeners because so many doctors are independent. They went through a lot of school and a lot of training, and they had to rely kind of on themselves to get through that. But broadening that, I mean, we really are reliant on our social network. Can you talk about some of the tools that doctors could use in setting goals with their teams? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I talk about social context first as, as getting others to support your individual goals. Okay? And, you know, I, if you uh, got a medical uh, degree, uh, then I'm sure other people in your life uh, were helpful. Yep. <laughs> uh, and they're not just doing your daily job. There are other people that are helping you with your goals. And then what you refer to, which I think is is probably even more relevant is how, how do you do things at a team? How do you uh, work with other people? And your team includes the, the people that help you provide care and also the people that are getting the care, okay? They are part of the team, okay? They are doing the work uh, with you. And when there are several people that are working together, we should look at how they coordinate Okay, we want to make sure that first there is not too much social loafing, okay, that things don't uh, uh, just uh, get away from us because too many people were supposed to come up with a solution because too many people were supposed to do something and then uh, uh, no one did it. Uh, social loafing is a real problem. Uh, we often try to identify contribution uh, so that if a group of people is supposed to do something together, we know exactly who does what. So people feel accountable and there is less of this natural tendency to social loaf. Okay, uh, one of the the classic studies on social loafing had people in the room, just a bunch of students, and, and they were just asked to make noise, which you would think is pretty easy. But the more people were in the room, the less noise each person made because, wow. right, like once someone is making noise here, I feel like it's noisy enough. Why should I make any noise? Uh -huh. uh, yeah. <laughs> then moving to a much more difficult task, like a meeting okay, where we need to generate ideas. Uh, well, we work, we think less hard if there are other people thinking about ideas in the room. And so really identifying individual contribution is often the key. And, and, and then having a pattern of coordination that, that fits the task, that fits the, the team. It's often not about everybody working at the same time. Okay, on the same problem. It's often about taking turns. It's often about uh, like uh, someone is, is resting or uh, you know doing uh, something that's easier while another person working hard until they you know they, they replace uh, they, they exchange uh, roles and and really be thoughtful about how you you coordinate. You don't want 
10 cooks in the kitchen, you also don't want 10 cooks that no one is working very hard because there is another nine. Okay, so you, you want the kitchen to be constantly working with people taking turns and with their uh, contribution being identified. Yeah, I, we've found that in our business. The, the bigger we grow, it's actually harder to get some things done with, with more people, as a, with a larger staff. And it's, it goes back to that coordination of tasks, who's working on what, when, how are we communicating that? And um, it's a great, great section of the book. I love your book. It's fantastic. I'm so grateful that you came on the program. I want to give you a chance to share what you're doing now. I know there's a lot going on um, in your research lab and, and what you're teaching. Kind of how can people learn more about you and learn about the science of motivation after they read the book? So the science of motivation is uh, really, I think, in the golden era at the moment. There is more uh, work uh, being done in a year than like what we probably did in uh, five years when I uh, started. Wow. There's like wow. so much interest and I'm, I'm constantly just getting contacted by people who are uh, interested to, to know how can we uh, do more to our, for our health, for our financial health, uh, um, you know, for whatever it is that we are doing in our organization. So I'm very excited about uh, where the field is going, lots of uh, behavioral interventions. Uh, I'm just personally uh, at the moment doing a lot of work on how people learn from negative feedback, which I briefly mentioned is very hard. Uh, you know, uh, one thing that we find just as an example is that it's much easier to learn from failure and negative feedback that someone else had. So often uh, a healthy organization will allow people to learn from other people's mistakes because it's easier for you and your ego is not attached to it to, to actually pay attention and, and learn. Uh, I'm also really interested in patience and what uh, makes people more willing to uh uh, they forego the immediate reward in, so they can get something that's better in, in the future. And we, we look at you know, the, the barrier of uh, uh, just uh, uh, feeling that you don't have the willpower. Okay, so maybe you quit the line because you feel that you just cannot wait and, and the barrier of not valuing enough what you are waiting for. And, and many people do have the ability to, to wait for the long-term rewards in life, but they might not feel that this is the right thing, that this is valuable enough. And so uh, how do we convince people that pursuing long-term interest is yeah, valuable uh, for them? So maybe that was a too long of an answer. I will say that uh, if people want to stay in touch with, with me and my work, uh, check my website, ayeletfishback.com, and uh, um, just uh, stay tuned. There's more coming. That's excellent. We'll include the link in the show notes. And I agree. I'm so excited for this research to continue to become more and more present in, in conversations like this and not just in uh, in professional circles because this is this is how we live better lives. It's how we plan for retirement. It's how we live healthier lives and, and be more productive as teams. And I love that it's uh, evidence-based. So thank you for writing the book. It's a great contribution to society and I enjoyed it uh, thoroughly. 
Thank you, Dustin. I, I really enjoyed talking to you, and I am so happy that uh, motivation science is uh, is making an impact. That there is uh, that people like you are uh, engaging with the science. It is wonderful to know. I don't know how you find the time, but I appreciate that you do. <laughs> I love it. I love to read and especially great books and yours is great. Dr. Fishbuck, thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to another episode of The Burleson Box, where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed the program, please be sure to share us with a friend or colleague. You can visit theburlesonbox.com and sign up to receive my monthly reading list, study guides for each of the books and authors we interview, or give us a call at 1-800-891-7520. We can talk about how a Burleson Box membership, monthly coaching, and our annual leadership conference can work for you and your team leaders. Please be sure to listen each month for new resources that will help you and your employees serve your patients with excellence. And until next time, remember the words of Jules Renard who said, when I think of all the books still left for me to read, I'm certain of further happiness. Go and make it a great month. I'll see you right here next time on The Burleson Box. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to stackspayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's stackspayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving.